The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Mike, it seems like every week we hear about a new automaker that's making investments in the province of Ontario. So I think it's perfectly apt that we have Brian Kingston on the podcast. Brian, of course, is the President Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association, uh, you know, representing uh, the likes of Ford, GM and Stellantis uh, in Canada. It was a great chat with Brian. Yeah, no, it really was because we, you know, from any, everything from Inflation Reduction Act, which Brian was able to bring to life to -hmm. us, I think in in a way that I think is, uh, is meaningful, but also like, I think a little obviously concerning for, you know, what we're kind of focused on right now when it comes to critical minerals in Ontario. So I think a lot of interesting nuggets to pull out of that one, where I think now your mind was kind of spinning and we've since had some conversations after that, uh, that chat today where, we're starting to see just, you know, how much of an impact this is going to make in the push that, uh, you know, that Ontario is trying to make uh, to become that fully integrated EV supply chain. Whereas, uh, but I don't want to take any win at a Brian sale. So I'm not going to get too much into the Inflation Reduction Act because I truthfully don't know as much as Brian does, which is why <laughs> it was so great to have him on. But I mean, what what else did you take away from that conversation? You know, obviously we knew going into it, we were going to have a great chat with Brian about, you know, the role that the CVMA is playing, but like, mm-hmm. seemed like there was, there was even more and we could have probably talked to him for longer than a half hour, but, uh, but we just, we didn't book him for long enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we want to be, uh, we want to be concise, you know, yeah. we want to be uh, pithy and uh, <laughs> quick, but uh, no, I think uh, despite the, some of the, the things that might uh, be challenges within the, uh, the IRA, I think, uh, gosh, it's, it's good to be, uh, a mineral rich nation right now, like Canada is. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity out there, and there's a lot of reason for optimism. And I think that's uh, sort of the key message that uh, that Brian gives us is that uh, the auto supply chain is here to stay more than ever uh, with the advent of EVs, and uh, we can look forward to more of those really cool announcements. So I think what we'll do now is we will stop talking and we'll go to Brian Kingston. Okay, and now we're back and we're joined by Brian Kingston. Brian is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Um, The CVMA represents Canada's leading manufacturers of light and heavy-duty motor vehicles. Its membership includes uh, no less than uh, Ford Motor Company of Canada, uh, General Motors of Canada Company, and Stellantis. Uh, Prior to joining the CVMA, Brian was the President of Policy, Fiscal, and International at the Business Council of Canada, where he led the Council's economic policy priorities and global engagement. Uh, Brian uh, holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Carleton University, uh, a master's in international affairs from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and an MBA from Ivy Business School, Go Mustangs. Uh, (laughs) And now he is, a, uh, of course, a guest on The Unlikely Innovators. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, so, Brian, we typically ask a version of what did you want to be when you grew up when we start, but I think we'll add a bit of color to sort of direct you in a specific direction. Uh, you've worked in policy and government for a number of years. Um, if you were looking at your sort of 10 to 15 year old self, was automotive a destination that was likely? Uh, what drew you to the automotive sector from policy? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a long and winding road. I've I've always been interested in the auto sector, but what really drew me in was um, my long-standing interest in economics and trade policy in particular. 
Um, I, uh, I I just found uh, even even starting in high school, uh, taking a, a high school economics course, I just found it a fascinating way to view the the world and how it works. And hence, that's what led me to study economics and then eventually focus on international trade. And so I've always been working in the field of trade, largely when I was in the federal government, actually in the trade department, and then at the Business Council of Canada through the USMCA negotiations. And auto was always front and center. It's hugely important to the Canadian economy. It's hugely important to our trade relationships. Um, and so I just found myself constantly being drawn into auto issues, um, although not directly working in the industry. And so when the opportunity came up to go and work at CBMA, it was, uh, it, it was a quick decision. I was super excited to learn more about the industry and actually get deeply involved in it. So it all stems from a love for economics, and uh, here I am today. Well, and I mean, in, in addition to economics, like you'd mentioned, obviously, the importance of the auto sector to global trade, uh, you know, in Canada's global trade. But this is probably maybe an obvious question, uh, but I'll let you kind of take it for a walk. Um, you know, your studies in international affairs, I would assume that that would be helpful, you know, in your, in your relatively new role at the CVMA. Can you talk about maybe how your background and interest in international affairs, um, you know, will help prepare you for, for the tasks that lay ahead uh, with this very important, uh, you know, trading avenue? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating about the auto industry is that it's truly global and it has one of the most expansive global supply chains of any industry. Uh, in, in Canada in particular, our auto industry is highly integrated with North America. So what that means is that international affairs, trade policy are always front and center considerations in this industry because of that cross-border integration. I mean, the stat that we've used for years at CVMA is that a part may cross the border seven or eight times before it's actually installed and in a vehicle uh, in the final assembly process. So having an understanding of global trade policy, having an understanding of some of the political dynamics that take place and how they impact the auto industry. I mean, a good example is just look what we've gone through over the past couple of years with the United States. There was uh, an initiative at one point to, to have the U.S. consumer purchase incentive for electric vehicles apply only to U.S. assembled vehicles. These are the types of policies that can come up and have a real impact on the Canadian industry. So having a background in trade and politics has been really helpful in navigating this industry and, and you know, ultimately making the case for the auto industry and the need for it to grow here in Canada. And I think, uh, you know, in law, they say, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to, but I'm going to try <laughs> uh, and put myself out there. But has it been common in past CVMA presidents that you, that there was such a policy grounding? Like I, I just watched clips of Moneyball again for the first time in a, in a bunch of, in a bunch of years on TikTok. And how that was sort of like uh, that sort of economics and data driven and policy driven thought process. Was that always how the CVMA is or were they always like former auto sector people that, that would sort of jump in and be the president of this important organization? Well, the previous uh, president was in the role, uh, Mark Nante, for, uh, I believe, just over 30 years. Um, wow. So a long, a long uh, and illustrious career at CDMA. And, you know, it was interesting. I actually had a lot of interactions with the association when I was in the federal government working on trade policy and trade negotiations. And if there was one stakeholder uh, who was always present uh, and, and had a very strong voice in trade discussions, it was auto. That was well known and, and it was CDMA. So I think there's a long history 
uh, and respect for what the association brings, its, its policy knowledge, its trade knowledge, and of course, its knowledge of the auto industry. Um, and uh, at least at the, the bureaucratic level that I was working at at the time, it, you know, it was pretty clear that you always had to understand where the auto industry was was thinking and, and what its uh, priorities were in the context of, of these trade negotiations, just given that, you know, it's our second, if you look at our, mm. our current export profile right now, our second largest export after after oil uh, is motor vehicles. So it's hugely important. So, yeah, there's a long history of CVMA being engaged in sort of policy, economics and trade. And you mentioned some of the U.S. Uh, decisions, policy decisions and how they are often made uh, not necessarily in a, in, a, in a bubble, but just not necessarily with uh, incipiently thinking about the Canadian context. And one of the things that we keep hearing about, and our listeners are predominantly from mining, increasingly other sectors as well. But uh, um, if you could you talk about the Inflation Reduction Act briefly, maybe if we could just uh, get that defined in, in, in basic terms and then what does that what does that impact the the Canadian auto sector? And then just maybe talk about that a bit. Sure. So the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, the uh, the IRA, um, and you know, poorly named, quite frankly, it's largely a climate change piece of legislation. Three hundred seventy billion U.S. dollars, um, the majority dedicated to uh, addressing climate change, and huge amounts earmarked for things like critical minerals development, uh, auto industry retooling. Um, and electric vehicle adoption. So this is a major piece of U.S. legislation. It has significant impacts for the Canadian auto industry, some good, some challenging. On, on the good side, um, the, the very encouraging component of the IRA was that Canadian-assembled electric vehicles are eligible for U.S. consumer purchase incentives. This is huge. We've seen major investments in Canada by Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Just recently, we saw Ford confirm that Oakville will be a major hub for electric vehicle assembly. And given that over 90% of what we build in this country goes to the United States, it's pretty important that these vehicles can uh, access U.S. incentives. So that's really encouraging. Um, there are also some provisions in there with respect to critical mineral sourcing. Uh, which has extremely positive uh, potential for Canada, given our natural resource endowment. On the challenging side, um, the incentives that the United States has put forward, particularly to attract battery supply chain investment, are unprecedented. Um, there is a production tax credit that is included in the IRA, which provides companies that assemble battery cell capital materials in the United States a production incentive for the next decade. And so what that effectively means is that every battery that you, you assemble in the United States is going to attract uh, the support. And so there are elements like that in this legislation, which are, you know, they're, they're good for the industry writ large and the transition to electrification. But they put the onus on Canada to really respond here. We're not going to attract as many battery plants as the U.S. will. Of course, not. we're a tenth of the size. But if we want to compete for a few of them, which we have to, then we're going to have to make sure that the playing field is level. So it's a big piece of legislation, positives and negatives uh, for the Canadian economy. Is there any... Uh... I just want to drill down on that on one piece of that. Is there any indication of how far down the supply chain that sort of mandate for American goes? Because one thing like, you know, as a student of history and, and particularly of, uh, of uh, well, Mike and I both students of history of, of understanding 
uh, natural resource wealth in Canada. I mean, we don't want to ship out raw materials anymore, but how far does that go given what we're seeing from our largest trading partners out of the border? I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to, uh, we want to be participants in this, in this uh, supply chain, but we also want to have some value added product uh, generation here in Canada. Yes. Yeah. So it, uh, what's encouraging is that it, it includes um, very specific sourcing requirements that actually apply to Canada and other U.S. FTA partners on minerals. Um, so if you want to qualify for the EV incentive, for example, over 40% of the critical minerals that are used in a vehicle need to be sourced from Canada at FTA partner. For batteries, same thing, 50% of components. And, we're, and the stringencies will actually ratchet up over time. So what the U.S. administration is trying to do here is create a North American battery supply chain. Right now, we are highly, highly dependent on China. Over 80% of critical minerals processing is occurring in China. Uh, very little of that activity happens in North America. So I think the challenge for Canada will be, um, you know, we know we have the minerals. There's been much debate over how quickly we can actually activate uh, approvals and get mines up and running. But then importantly, are we going to capture some of that additional value add by bringing some of that processing to Canada? You can do that and under the under the scope of the IRA, it would still qualify for incentives. Uh, so I think that's where the big economic opportunity is. Build the mines, but also build out the associated supply chain and make sure that we're capturing as much value as possible. We've we've been very fortunate that you know, with downstream, we've secured these investments in EV assembly plus major battery plants. So that's there. The question is, can we feed these facilities with Canadian produced inputs? I think I think we can, but we don't have much time. Um, if you look at some of the targets that are being set by governments, I mean, we're talking about well over 50% of all new vehicles sold by 2030 should be electric. Um, and so that, you know, that's ambitious and it gives us very little time to build out the supply chain. Yeah. And, and one of the challenges, obviously, with some of those, uh, you know, zero emission man, zero emission vehicle mandates is obviously, you know, Steve and I here in Northern Ontario, like, you know, we obviously have our local perch, but we know that Northern Ontario and at least in our community, there's a big push for these, for these vehicles. But we know from what we see here that like the infrastructure is not ready to support that. Um, and that's something that you've been vocal about as well, that these mandates, they're great and they're obviously ambitious, but like without uh, a national plan that's also focused on things like grid resiliency and changing infrastructure, you know, what type of strategies do you think we need to have in order to at least meet, you know, some of those targets that we've already set? Because without all of the the support structures to go with that, uh, you know, that that's great to meet that target. But if you can't actually support that and keep these vehicles on the road and going, um, you know, that's not doing a whole heck of a lot of good. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And, and we're constantly reminding governments that at the end of the day, it is the consumer that decides what vehicle they want to drive. And they make that decision based on a range of factors. Usually it's price, obviously. And then, convenience. What do you use your vehicle for? Do you go hunting? Are you a big camper? Do you have family that lives all over Ontario? I, I've got family down uh, in southwestern Ontario on the shores of Lake Huron, and I can tell you driving down there with two young kids, it's an undertaking, and you want to make sure you get it done as quickly as possible. So if you have charging challenges, people won't make the switch to electric. So at the end of the day, we have to ensure 
the consumers want to switch because they see the benefits. They see the benefits of not having to fuel their vehicle and they find it convenient to charge at home if they can. If we don't address those barriers, though, and the price point remains higher without incentives, folks that don't have ability to charge a vehicle at home because they don't live in a detached home with a driveway, if they can't find a place to charge on the street or nearby, they won't make the switch. So government's keen to mandate what Canadians can and can't buy. We're making the case to them that we want this switch to be something that people want to do. So let's build out those supports. Let's provide the incentives. And really, you know, if there's one thing that's keeping me up at night right now, it is the infrastructure. Um, that is the big challenge. When you think about the ambition of these targets, you should be looking out your window anywhere in Canada and see people fear working nonstop on power lines and uh, EV charging infrastructure, because we need literally millions of charging ports if you're going to support a fully electric fleet. And we're so far from being there right now. Uh, and that will be the barrier. That will be the thing that, that makes these targets unachievable. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a time when we see gas stations closing down between large cities. And, uh, you know, you, you look outside, there's gas stations every, you know, couple kilometers. You, we're not seeing the same thing with charging infrastructure at all. I think one of the funniest things we see, in, well, at least I see in Northern Ontario, is a lot of the... Uh, you know, big burly miners get in their huge pickup trucks made by some of your members, and then they uh, they drive to the mine site, park their gas vehicle, and then they get in an EV and drive underground all day. <laughs> uh, maybe we need to sort of equalize those two sides eventually. And I think that's what we're going to see as the, uh, you know, bigger class of vehicles start to, uh, to electrify as well. Yeah, well, and, and that's that's the exciting thing right now in this transition is that you're seeing from four GM and Stellantis, electrified versions of extremely popular pickup trucks coming into the market. Mm -hmm. We already have the F-150 Lightning. We just got details on, on the Ram. Um, Silverado is being electrified. And what's amazing about these vehicles is just that their utility capability performance is, is phenomenal and really significant driving ranges as well, which I know was, you know, that used to be a valid concern. Can you buy a vehicle that's going to give you the four or 500 kilometers of range? So the technology is advancing rapidly and, and you know, I'm hoping it'll get to a point where that miner drives their electrified pickup to the mine and then they go down and they're driving the electrified machinery as well. I, I think we're getting close to that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd buy a Ford Ranger tomorrow if they had an electric version of it. Um, I know that they had one as a demo in the like late 90s. You could buy a Ford Ranger or you could see a Ford Ranger EV. Um, but I, I, I love the Ranger platform and I would buy one uh, tomorrow if they had it. I'm sure they'll roll that out soon. But F-150 is the most popular, obviously. Yeah. 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 I, I was thought you. I thought you'd be breaking news for us today that they're uh, releasing the Ranger soon. But uh, <laughs> I'll say I'll save you from that obligation. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're a trades, trades and technology college, and one of the things we always have our eye on is, uh, are we making the right student skill profile uh, for the future? And sometimes it could take, you know, it's like turning the Titanic around to get our skills in line with what industry needs. What are some of your, like, and, and it's, it's changing, right? I mean, we, we like to say that you'll still need to know how to crimp a hydraulic hose to be able to, to work on electrified heavy equipment, but that's not going to be the case forever. Uh, you're bringing your laptop to a maintenance call, you know, more so than, than your tool bag. And it seems the same with, you know, above ground on highway EVs. What are you seeing in the skills profile for your, for, for essentially, you know, your members at the plant? Are we seeing a change 
that is uh, that is noteworthy that, that needs a lot of reskilling? And where are they going to get all those people for those new assembly plants? Yeah, well, first, just on on the actual demand, um, there's been some really good analysis done by a group called Focal on the auto industry labor market. And like many industries, what you'll find is that uh, with uh, looming retirements, um, there's going to be a significant demand, tens of thousands of jobs that need to be filled in the coming years. And then you add on top of that, uh, some of the new investments into battery plants and, uh, and, and, and in the supply chain. And, um, you know, it's exciting. There are going to be big opportunities here for, for Canadians. Um, when it comes to the type of skills, you know, obviously with electrification, it does require a different skill set than what you would have in a traditional um, gas-powered uh, ice, ice plant. And what really strikes me is as you walk around a, a plant floor now, you know, you're more likely to see someone carrying a, a tablet, um, monitoring the various machines that are working, you know, fully automated, um, as opposed to what you, you would have seen 20 or 30 years ago where people were still... Uh, doing, you know, an element of manual physical labor on the line. So um, what that means is for, for programs that are, are training people, it's, it's incorporating that, that technological element to it, uh, obviously incorporating the, the new powertrain and what's required for mm -hmm. uh, uh, assembling these as opposed to, to ICE. Um, so, yeah, there, there, is, there is a need for, for reskilling and making sure that the, the educational programs in Canada that have traditionally fed into the auto industry are updating their curriculum to make sure they're preparing for these new um, vehicle mandates that are coming to, to the plants in Ontario. You know, on these, on these podcasts with an autofocus, I always hate saying things like changing gears, but I, I do love it because why not? <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've already touched on this, Brian, but I'll downshift uh, to bring this back into the conversation. <laughs> See, I've done it twice now. See, you yeah. just got to lean into it. But um, the brakes on that. Uh, stuff. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> now we're, we're going overboard now. But uh, but you mentioned critical minerals, you know, Brian, and uh, this is obviously something that's of, of vital importance to Ontario and, and the country at large. And especially here in Ontario, but in Canada, we've boasted about how we have all of the mineral wealth necessary to become an integrated EV supply chain. Um, obviously, that's very interesting, you know, to to place like Sudbury that has a lot of these critical minerals that are going to be necessary, you know, to, to support uh, these these EV mandates in the future. But can you talk about what your members are saying about sourcing local battery materials, whether it's here in Ontario or across the country, and how important that will be? you know, to the success and, and likelihood of us achieving these goals and, and meeting these mandates? It's hugely important. And sourcing in North America in particular um, is is a huge priority. And all you have to do is just look at some of the announcements that, that auto companies have been making. Um, you know, and I speak obviously for my members, but if you look at some of uh, the announcements from other global automakers that are showing a real interest in Canada, um, uh, you know, that's, that's indicative of both the uh, potential that Canada has because of our mineral endowment, but also because of the, the uh, sourcing requirements that the U.S. has put forward in the IRA. If you want to qualify for these incentives and, and be part of this, the U.S. is a major automotive market, you've got to be sourcing from North America. Uh, and Canada is really the place, the only place for some of these minerals where that can be done. Um, so that that is a huge, huge economic opportunity the challenge is, can we actually take advantage of the opportunity in the relatively short time frame that we have? We've 
we know the timelines that it takes in Canada to do big things, to undertake major projects. It is a challenge. It's been well recognized. Um, and we just saw it recognized in the federal budget again that, you know, the, a 10 to 15 year approval process for a mine is not going to work. Um, but what we're missing is tangible ideas to shorten that while still making sure that we're protecting our environmental standards and we're undertaking consultations with indigenous communities. We have to do this right. Um, but we all we have to do it right and quickly. And you know, I'm not going to pretend I know the answer. I'm not a mining uh, expert, uh, but that to me is the big challenge because I, I really hope that if you have me on this podcast in ten years, we're not talking about the same things and 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 the lost opportunity as we see other jurisdictions ramp up their capacity. And and this is highly competitive. Well, Canada has these minerals. The U.S. is currently in the process of negotiating. They're calling them free trade agreements, but they're effectively small bilateral agreements that will allow other countries to uh, be part of the IRA sourcing requirements. So one of these has just been struck with Japan, uh, mm -hmm. talks with Indonesia. Um, so it's not as though the U.S. is sitting still and kind of saying, all right, we're just going to wait for Canada to, to, to kind of get moving and become a supplier here. There are other countries that can do this. Um, so we've got to move. We've got to move right now. Yeah, and thank you for putting that into perspective, because I think uh, there's a misconception out there that there's going to be so much global demand that we can afford to be second or third or fourth. But that's I keep telling people that's not the case. We yeah. can the there is gradations of winning at this game, but the gradations of losing it get worse as it goes further and further down. Um, so I, I think we're uh, another question that we sort of have um, and, you know, as someone who follows sort of economic history and and if you were to ask me if it would even be in the discussion if uh, these companies like uh, Ford and others GM uh, would be looking at becoming more vertically integrated than they have been uh, I would be uh, pretty shocked but we've actually heard rumblings of auto companies that will remain nameless that are actually looking at buying stakes in mining companies uh, I'll ask you to look in your crystal ball for a second what do you think the likelihood that we see a major auto manufacturer, uh, we can speak in general terms, actually having a, like either a majority or strong minority stake in a mining uh, firm in Canada to, to sort of secure some of that uh, supply. And do you think it makes sense for these companies that have relied on the auto parts manufacturers uh, in a very uh, horizontally integrated way to be that vertical? A lot, lot, of, lot of in there, but just if you're... <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I think it is. I think it is a possibility that you'll see auto manufacturers becoming more um, directly in, involved and potentially even, um, you know, becoming minority shareholders in some of these mining companies. And, and the reason I say that um, is because there is a real um, uh, scramble to secure these required inputs. Um, and if you look, there was a, a fascinating study out right now by Benchmark Minerals uh, Intelligence. It's looking at global demand um, for um, batteries and then their associated inputs through to 2035. They're estimating that if we're going to achieve uh, the EV sales objectives and targets that are being set globally, we're going to need 300 new mines by 2035. I mean, just, just imagine that, the scale of that, 300 new mines. That's the production that's mm -hmm. necessary 
uh, to to have the uh, the graphite and the lithium and the nickel and cobalt that's going to be required for these batteries. So in that context, where you've got this the scramble for these resources, um, I think you will see interesting approaches by companies to to ensure that they've got a consistent, secure supply um, of these inputs going forward. And and you know what you're seeing in the industry really, we saw this um, initially through COVID and and the set global semiconductor shortage. Um, uh, our desire to have more transparency into the supply chain to avoid situations like that, right? The semiconductor uh, shortage, you know, hard to predict, obviously. I don't think many people were predicting a global pandemic, but who would have thought we'd be in a situation here years later where we still have semiconductor shortages and it's having an impact on vehicle inventories. So, um, you know, I think the lesson there is having more transparency into the supply chain, more sort of early warning systems, if you will, on when there may be um, input shortages um, is, is going to be a really smart business strategy going forward. So um, I hope that that answers some of it. I don't want to make any any uh, overly bold predictions, but no, I, I no, think of course it's more integration. No, I think that's great. I think what... Uh... And maybe we'll uh, we'll end on this, Brian. But um, one thing that sort of struck me as we were talking, uh, am I, is it overstated to say that the EV consumer of the future? Uh, I always hear that you know that it's important for for auto manufacturers to so source local, not only for all those incentives, but the EV uh, consumer of the future really will care. Uh, from an ethical perspective, where the uh, the minerals in their vehicle were sourced from is, are you seeing that be as important as those, or are we overstating how important that is in in North America and Europe and other sort of well known uh, ethically uh, ethical consumers, essentially? I think it is important, and I think it will become increasingly important. And all you have to do is look at the various initiatives that auto manufacturers are taking with respect to um, supply chain transparency. Consumers want to know where the inputs and materials that are that are um, in their vehicle are, are coming from. And so you're seeing more and more of that tracking and tracing being done throughout the supply chain. I don't see that shifting, that that trend. Um, so I, I think there will be uh, a drive for that. The other, the other important point is the localization, of course, with, uh, with batteries, um, given their size and weight. You generally don't want to be moving these things extremely long distances, right? Shipping something from, from Asia via ship uh, to, to North America for assembly um, is, is probably not going to be uh, an outcome that most companies are going to be striving for. So I think you will see just on that basis. And like we've seen it in, in Ontario, you have the assembly plant, and then that creates a whole ecosystem of parts suppliers close by um, because we've got a just-in-time manufacturing process and, and it creates efficiencies. So um, I think you're going to see the, the consumer push, the companies doing their own supply chain transparency initiatives, mm -hmm. plus um, just the economics of, of this industry requiring um, uh, assembly to be done in a, in a relatively localized place. Well, well, Brian, like I think uh, you've been so generous with your time today. We'll have to end it there. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, and I think we'll have an opportunity to do that in Sudbury at the end of May and June. And I think your point about how, if we were to have you back in 10 years, which we'd welcome, hopefully we're having a very different conversation. We're not asking you the same things again, because that would mean we've missed out on this uh, this generational opportunity. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and, and look forward to uh, seeing you at the, the conference in Sudbury. Right on. Thanks so much for your time, Brian. Appreciate it. 
Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brian. Steve, I'm going to bring your Moneyball reference <laughs> and the current critical mineral strategy together now. And I hope Do that it. this resonates with you. Adapt or die. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's that's Billy Beans. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what he says to his scouting staff when they're, you know, resistant to his analytics based approach. But I think much like Billy Bean in the Oakland Athletics, like right now in Canada and Ontario, like there's a really, like, as you've said, a generational opportunity when it comes to critical minerals. And if we don't change the way that we're currently just digging holes in the ground and sending raw materials elsewhere, like adapt or die, we have to Mm -hmm. look at how to fully integrate uh, to really take advantage of this opportunity. So yeah. And I, and I think, um, look, if, if folks like Ford that make gas pickup trucks can Re- retrofit a line of, of of F-150s to make electric vehicles in Oakville, then uh, surely we can get minerals out of the ground faster than we are and processed here locally. So I'm I'm optimistic that we'll get this right. Uh, the the uh, the opportunity is great enough uh, mm-hmm. for us to do that. So, um, but thank you for uh, rescuing my Moneyball analogy. Hopefully, people understand uh, what I was talking about. Uh, and if I... not, uh, you know. I uh, I I uh, I read the book by Michael Lewis, and I honestly probably watch Moneyball. I would say like once a quarter. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah one I, of those I watch ones it like four or five, to. four or five times a year. Sometimes it's just in the background while I'm like doing notes or other things. But like it's 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 up there for me as like one of my go tos for sure. Well, and as an economist, I'm sure Brian is uh, Brian has probably read the book and watched it. But uh, yeah, uh, not to say that he's PD, but uh, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, uh, there's a there's a lot of analytics that uh, that can be applied to a lot of different situations. So, yeah, and uh, I mean, I think this probably be a good time for you to maybe plug. Oh yeah, um, the the uh, Mindset Mobility BV in Depth Conference that uh, that Brian will be at. We kind of did tease it a little bit at the end of our conversation with Brian, but but maybe yeah. now before the listeners log off, I mean, they're definitely still here because that Moneyball reference it yeah, landed. That was like yeah, a. Yeah. It, it, that's that's what yeah that's why people are sticking around so for me to uh, pat myself on the back for an analogy i did so yeah there you go yeah there you go um but of course on uh on may 31st and june 1st uh at cambrian college here in sudbury uh we're going to be bringing together the uh battery electric vehicle supply train the automotive uh i think i said supply train you did but like i <laughs> keep it rolling supply chain <laughs> uh as well as the uh the mining uh and mineral supply chain so uh, Brian is actually on a panel, and if you like any of the things he said today, you can ask him a lot of questions uh, when you come to that event. Uh, tickets will go on sale on Tuesday, uh, April 18th. There you go. So check back for that. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's time for the supply train to leave the station. Choo-choo. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.